Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 324. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 324 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated recording engineer Steve Genowick. Steve is making a return appearance on the show. His original appearance was on episode number 70. He appeared with Al Schmidt then, and Steve and I have become friends since, and I just felt like it was well due time to have him back on the show. Now, for those of you that don't know Steve, Steve's been at this for about 30 years. He's worked in all kinds of recording studios, Capitol, United, Village Recorders, Abbey Road, uh, La Fabrique in France. And at least for the last 20 years, Steve has worked alongside the great Al Schmidt, working with a large array of people, as you would imagine, including Diana Krall, Gladys Knight, Neil Young, George Benson, Paul McCartney. He's actually one of the first engineers to begin mixing a huge amount of Dolby Atmos mixes. And we're going to talk about Dolby Atmos a bit in this conversation. Needless to say, Steve has a crap ton of experience. He's a fantastic guy, and I'm really happy to call him my friend. We have a great conversation coming up. Steve Genowick coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about revisions. Now, we all know revisions are a natural part of the mixing and mastering process. It can be a glorious time when you interact with the client, or it can be a horrible time. And it all depends on how everybody interacts with one another, both upfront before the, the mix or the master happens, as well as once the first version of the mix or master happens. How you communicate with one another is super key. As audio professionals, we can't, of course, control how the artists react and the artist communicate, but we can control how we communicate with them, right? Very simple. So before we even begin to mix or master, it is absolutely crucial, as I'm sure many of you have learned over the years, that it's a great idea to at least have a simple conversation up front about where the artist is, what they foresee. Get them to articulate what they envision the mix to be, or if there's any improvements that they see with regards to what the mastering can bring to the table. That's their opportunity to verbalize things that have been hanging around in their head during their entire process. And it's your opportunity to seize on the clues to help you get a mix or master with as few revisions as possible. In my particular case, I've had revisions range from great, I love it, let's go with it, which is, you know, obviously that's the ultimate because you just did something, they love it, you proceed to the next one and hopefully you get that response on the rest of the songs. And I've also had bullet point email lists with minute and second markers detailing every flaw in my mix. And it's clear that I have done the wrong thing. I've had everything in between. So in an ideal world, I think we all can agree, we want our clients to sign off as soon as possible. So how do we get to that point? My thoughts on this are that communication is the key. Communication up front, communication after the fact. The first bit of communication I've already mentioned, it's you know getting the artist's input on the front end. And then once the revisions come in, continuing the lines of communication. Emails and texts alone are really a recipe for disaster in my book. I like to get the client in a video call or at least in a phone call to get them to verbalize what they think. Because sometimes they either over-articulate or under-articulate in an email. They may say things that we misread or misconstrue. And when you get them in a verbal conversation, one-on-one, back and forth, you can quickly get to the points that are most important to them and you can get the true meaning behind their words as opposed to reading it in an email or a text. How you respond to their criticisms is really key as well. Look, it's a no-brainer to say it takes great empathy and patience to deal with certain clients sometimes. And it may not be in your nature to do that. When it comes to working with clients, I have to put that, that hat on of patience and empathy. You have to see it from their point of view. They are just like we've said in this podcast for a long time, it's a service business, so they are like your table at your restaurant. You're the waiter. If they want a glass of water or they want 
10 glasses of wine, whatever it is, you try to accommodate in the best way you can and as quickly as you can. And you have to pick your battles too. You may disagree about the level of the vocal and you can push back a little bit, of course, but do so in a respectful fashion. And definitely if there's one episode of the podcast that I can recommend you listen to with regards to working with clients and how they see things, that would be the Michael Brower episode. So I highly encourage you to check that one out because I think Michael has over the years with his experience developed great ways of communicating with clients. And I think there's something to be learned there. So I could go on and on and on, and I certainly don't want to because I know we, we want to get to the interview here. However, just remember patience, empathy, communication. These are the keys that help make a great mix or a great master with your clients. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Steve Jenowick here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, it's been a while. I think Al and I were on a few years ago, right? Three or four years ago? No, we're on episode 320-something, and you guys were on episode 70. Wow, there you go. That was a long time ago. Yeah, we've done a lot since then. Yeah, I think you have. <laughs> Actually, well, not in the last year we haven't. <laughs> <laughs> you have managed to do a lot in the last year. Actually, yeah. Capital shut down, I think it was like the 13th of March. We had gone down to no clients and we were just doing unattended sessions. Mm -hmm. And then word came down, we're shutting down tomorrow. They said, you can come in tomorrow and, and wrap up what you were doing. So I came in and I just started copying stuff to hard drives and putting equipment in my car, having no idea what was going to happen. But we, you know, we had projects 
that we're in the middle of and stuff like that. So I backed up as much as I could and we powered down the studios and turned off the lights and walked out and didn't know what was going to happen. And I've always had a, a small studio here at the house, just in a, a little office I have and figured, well, I can work from there. And it was actually my wife who came up with the idea. She said, you know what? You're going to be here for a while. Why don't you just take the living room? And we kind of moved all the furniture out of the living room. And I set up a 7-1 system here in the living room that's now expanded to 7-1-2. I can mix Atmos here. I can mix the video games I work on, stereo records. So really, we shut down on a Friday. And by the next like Tuesday or Wednesday, I was completely up and running here at the house. And we were in the middle of a couple of records and stuff like that. So I really never stopped working, which is good. That is good. And yet Capital continued to do unattended stuff or did they shut you out entirely? They shut us out entirely till like, I think we went back like September, October. We went back and we started doing some attended sessions with COVID restrictions. And then right around December, they shut us down again. I mean, we always shut down for the Christmas holidays anyways. Mm -hmm. They just kind of extended that. As of now, we're gearing up again. There's people back in the studios, some attended sessions, some unattended sessions. There's still COVID restrictions and stuff like that, but we're actually getting back to work, which is nice. That being said, if I don't have to go in, I don't, I stay home because it's, it's easier and, and safer here. But I'd be in probably a couple times a week as sessions pop up. Have you become completely accustomed to working from home now? Yeah. When I put the original studio together, I, I like to say I have a studio at home by mistake. I never really wanted a studio at home, but when Pro Tools, what was it, eight or 10 years ago, you could put Pro Tools on a laptop. So I had Pro Tools on a laptop and, oh, well, I can do this editing at home. And then it was, well, maybe I'll just put up a set of speakers. And next thing you know, well, oh, yeah, I can mix that little acoustic record, stuff like that. Obviously, before COVID, the point of having a studio at home was always to do projects that were never going to go to Capitol or a big studio. It was stuff that didn't have budgets, stuff like that. And when I did it, I told Capitol, like, I have a studio at home and I'm working independently, but I'm not competing with Capitol at all. It's strictly stuff that was never going to go there, usually because of budget stuff. Or then I would do stuff like if I was doing a jazz record, okay, let's go to Capitol and record it. Let's spend the money on the recording, but then I'll mix it at home. So everybody got a little taste of that. Since lockdown, yeah, I've been doing a lot more work at home. But even then, like, you know, when I mix the Atmos stuff here, it's not a treated room. This, this is not capital C. This is my living room with mismatched speakers and all that. So I get about 90% here. And then I take those mixes to a real room and listen to them and, and give them the once over before they get turned in. So... You know, this mm. is definitely a temporary setup. I mean, it might be temporary for a while, but I, I don't think I'm going to have a studio in my living room forever. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that that goes over well in the long term. I mean, that was nice of, of your wife to make that suggestion, but how does that impact the, the family? It impacts the family greatly. <laughs> I mean, at the time, there were, there were five of us living here when lockdown started. My son was between apartments. He was living here. My daughter, who you know, goes to Cal Berkeley up near you. And, and she came home and was doing school online. And my mother-in-law and my wife. So there were five of us like scattered in our own little holes. I can't blast music late at night, stuff like that. I start work at 9.30 or 10 and I work till dinner time. Then I shut it down. And if I have to come in and do something on headphones or whatever, I can. But I've been trying to do that 10 to 6-ish schedule. Believe it or not, I actually get a lot of work done because my commute is like 10 seconds now rather yeah. than an hour. So that's, that's a lot better. <laughs> it's kind of fun because I can kind of work at my own pace too, which is nice. If I'm not feeling it, I shut it down and go for a walk or something. But it's definitely different. Yeah, because if you're at Capitol, you're not necessarily going to just go walk out the door and go take a walk right? Not really. Especially now, Hollywood's not the nicest place right now <laughs> to walk through. <laughs> what did that take to set up an Atmos space in your living room? So obviously the speakers. I did have enough speakers. I have a combination of PMC and JBL speakers. I literally swiped the subwoofer off my home stereo system <laughs> and stuck that in. Originally, it was a 7-1 system and I was using, I have an Apollo, UAD Apollo, and I was using those outputs and I have both the studio and Dolby were very generous. When they knew we were going to be working at home, the studio was like, what do you need? So I have obviously all the Dolby software, which, which I had anyways, because we, we work very closely with them. So I was able to set up the Dolby render on my computer and 
I eventually switched over to a Focusrite interface because I wanted more channels because mm-hmm. I did end up putting two speakers on the ceiling. So yeah, again, it's kind of a piecemeal together system. It works great and it sounds good in here, but I don't know that I would suggest it. It's not my <laughs> preferred way of working. <laughs> I would certainly much rather be at Capitol in a real room, obviously. Right. And I'm sure your wife kind of looked at you sideways when you started mounting speakers on the ceiling. Yeah. And some of the stuff I've been mixing doesn't always. The Nine Inch Nails didn't go over that well. (laughs) (laughs) The video game stuff is kind of bangy. And (laughs) I mixed some Shania Twain stuff earlier in the pandemic and my daughter was about to kill me. (laughs) Well, it's not just hearing the music. It's hearing the same passages over and over again. Exactly. That's the thing. I'm doing something, so it makes sense to me. But listening to the same song for four or five hours when they really don't know what I'm doing, I'm sure it's just mind-numbingly boring and annoying. And of course, you know, when I interviewed Dave Way, I could see the speakers on his ceiling in the video, and we talked about it because he's been hanging out with you, of course. That yep. he's yeah, we've been mixing a project together. <laughs> yeah, he's got a nice studio, though. I've been up there a few times. He's got the perfect situation because he's got a totally separate studio dedicated studio space at his house it's really nice too it sounds really good up there he did a good job with it do you need a big room to do an atmos mix space not a huge room it helps i mean you want to get the speakers spaced enough to where you can feel the room Mm -hmm. like the the room that you're kind of creating not necessarily the room you're in so i mean this room i'm in here is about 20 feet by 30 feet maybe and i think the speakers are about i think i measured they're like six and a half feet away from me, each one. The back speakers are a little farther back just because of walkways. So, I mean, you need a decent size space. You need a decent height ceiling. I mean, this is an eight foot, nine foot ceiling, and this is about as low as I would go, I think. So the thing about Atmos and and this is it's kind of more important to make sure that your levels are correct rather than your room is set up absolutely perfectly. On 5.1, you had to get everything set like mathematically perfect so that when you pan stuff, it went between the speakers and stuff like that. Atmos is a little more forgiving because the playback can change depending on where you are. The renderer just, it knows what room it's in and it modifies the mix and the objects for that playback space. You know, I have a 712 system here, but at Capital, it's a 916 system. But the renderer knows that and it just puts stuff where it belongs. So you do need a, a halfway decent size room. Trying to do it in a, in a smaller room would be tough. I don't think I could do this in the little office my studio was originally in. It's just the speakers would be like headphones. <laughs> They'd be right next to you. Yeah, no, that, but that's a possibility too, isn't it? You can do some Atmos work on headphones. Yeah, the binaural stuff in the render, it's, it gets better every time they come out with a new version. A lot of our guys are like starting mixes on headphones now. I'm the only one of the capital engineers that has a full 7-1 setup. So most of the guys, what they've been doing is is starting their mixes on headphones and getting them pretty close. And then when we can go into a room and finish them off. But yeah, you, you can do a lot in headphones. It's a bit of a different experience in headphones. Listening to Atmos in headphones is not the same as listening to it on speakers. It's a different experience. Not to say that it's a bad experience. It's just different. Mm. Headphones just work differently. When you listen to music in headphones, center is, it's the top of your head. Right. It's not in front of you. Where when you listen on speakers, center is in front of you. So those kind of things become a bit more challenging. But like I said, it gets better every time they come out with a new version of the render. The binaural gets better. And we have some settings in the render that we can use to push stuff in and out and all that. So it's a pretty cool experience. It's definitely a better experience than straight stereo, Uh, which is good. (laughs) Let's talk about that for a sec because... I'm optimistic, but I'm also, I'm positively skeptical. Sure. I mean, the surround formats have, have come and gone, and and this seems to be like, there seems to be a lot of fire behind it, a lot of financial muscle behind it, when Universal Music Group or Capital is just really putting out a lot of effort and paying you guys to do a lot of mixes, that says something. But do you think that there's a, a market for indie bands that want to do this? I do. Obviously, it's going to depend on the consumer playback systems, which are getting better and better and more available. I think the consumer systems obviously will be driven by the film industry and places like Netflix. All the the Netflix content, the requirement is to deliver an Atmos. Mm. Whether you're using it for what it does or just static objects, whatever it is. So 
obviously it will depend on the consumer playback systems. I have a soundbar system in my family room now. I have a Sonos soundbar with a couple of satellite speakers and I can listen to stuff in Atmos. Again, a bit of a different experience than having capital C with a quarter million dollars worth of speakers. But I think the difference is, you know, like we talked about before with 5.1, it was a very fragile system. If you didn't have the speakers set up perfectly and you weren't kind of sitting in the right spot, the whole thing fell apart. It didn't really work because the way the Atmos system works, because it's adaptable to the room you're in Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter how many speakers you have, it's so flexible in that way that you can play it back on anything like the little Amazon studio, which is like $200 to a full-blown home theater system. Again, like anything, it's the same as stereo. If you invest in a really great stereo system, it's going to sound better than (laughs) your earbuds. Mm Mm-hmm. So, but you can listen to music on your earbuds and be perfectly happy. And you can do the same with Atmos. Is it hard to get things to translate because you're at the whim of whatever the consumer decides to play it through? I mean, you say Atmos will adapt and I understand that concept, but will it actually adapt in a way that is conducive to the soundtrack to, to, or to the sound of a film or the sound of a record? Yes. Yeah, so when I first started mixing three or four years ago, there was no consumer playback system. We had no idea how people were going to be listening to this stuff, but we were told we need content, so keep mixing. So originally, it wasn't like I could go to my car and listen. I mean, originally, I didn't have another room to listen in. I literally had one place I could listen to to mixes in. So we were kind of guessing. And luckily, we guessed right, because when the consumer system started coming out, we realized that our mixes were translating really well. We consider it more now that there's more systems out there, but now we can also listen to those systems. And so I kind of know what works and what doesn't work. And luckily, kind of the techniques that we, I say stumbled upon, but literally we made up, me and a couple of the other guys, they've worked really well. Because I've heard some really kind of not great stuff in Atmos. And you can really hear stuff that doesn't work. I could hear where it was like, oh, they put everything in the bed and suddenly it moved in this room. I doubt they wanted that back there, but you know, I don't want to get into too much of the weeds about how the system works, but there are scenarios where you can put something one place and it'll play back on another system and end up in a different place. And once we figured those things out, it was like, ah, okay, let's not do that. There's a very easy way around it. It's just, you kind of have to know what's going on. Let's say someone like me, if I want to educate myself about Atmos, Mm-hmm. And let's assume that I don't have access to you. Let's just say I'm the average working engineer. What's the best method to educate yourself? So without huge investment, obviously, the Dolby Render software is fairly inexpensive. The Atmos software, I think it's a couple hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. It will work. It's fully integrated in Pro Tools. It's fully integrated in Nuendo. Obviously, you can use it with logic and whatever DAW you have, there's a way to use it. If you're in Nuendo or Pro Tools, it's way easier. I mean, in Pro Tools, it's a seamless thing. I never, I look at the renderer, but I don't have to do anything weird. I just set it up and go. So you can set up the Dolby software with a pair of headphones. That's the easiest way. Grab a pair of headphones, start moving stuff around. Again, your experience will be a little bit different. If you have, say, a 5.1 setup, that's fine. You can set up a 5.1 system. Obviously, you won't hear if you push something into what would be the ceiling, you're not going to hear it coming out of the ceiling. You're going to hear it coming out of one of your 5.1 speakers, but it's there. You can do it. You can learn the software. You can learn how it works. There's plenty of videos and stuff now out there. Yeah. So it's not quite as daunting as it seems until you really want to get in and set up a bigger system. Then it's a little more complicated. The setup of it is a little more complicated. But once it's set up, it's, it's pretty simple. I'll put a link in the show notes to the to the Dolby software for the audience so that they can download that, spend mm-hmm. the money if they want, and uh, check that out. And just one other thing. Yeah. It's the same software. It's the same system that the movie guys use. So we may use it differently when we're mixing music-only content, but the tools are exactly the same, just so you know. Then that raises the question, okay, so I know like everybody else who does this. If I make a mix, I print a stereo mix, I can send that to the client, they approve it, blah, blah, blah. Life goes on. However, how does this work for music? I mean, film's one thing, but music. Yeah, we found that getting approvals from clients is kind of the most difficult thing. (laughs) Because we have to bring them in and educate them, really. I can't just send you a mix unless you have a system. Right. So that part of it has been a little more challenging. 
one thing I always preach is whenever you bring an artist or a client in to approve their mix, never play them their mix first. Always play them something else. Like get their feet wet with the system. Like this is what it's going to do. I usually start, there's a famous mix that Greg Penny did of Rocket Man, the Elton John song. Well, it's a great song, but it's also a great way to show off Atmos because of the way it builds and comes in and out. So we usually start with stuff like that, get them acquainted with the Atmos system and what it's going to do, and then play their record for them rather than freak them out with, oh my God, what did you do to my music? <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a little tougher. Oh, I'm sure over the next year, I'll be bending your ear a little more about this. Yeah. So no, I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm going to prep you now. <laughs> I have a theory, and and luckily Universal and Dolby and everybody is on board too. My theory is we either all win or we all lose. So I'm perfectly happy to talk about it and tell people what I do and how I do it and why I do it. I'm pretty much an open book. It's not like this is something that we're trying to keep to ourselves. We want everybody mixing in Atmos and listening to Atmos. And I really think it's the future, hopefully. Just to conclude, at the core of it, you're talking about a DAW feeding an interface that can feed a certain amount of speakers and have some kind of controller that can control the volume on the group of speakers, right? Yes. Yes. And the Dolby encoder just encodes that Atmos information. Exactly. Okay. You can even use the, there's a volume knob on the software that you can use. So before I had a volume control on the focus, right? When I was just using my Apollo, I just had the little fader in Pro Tools. You have to be careful. Make sure you don't blow your speakers up. Yikes. But, yeah. The one thing I do do is like I'm religious about speakers get turned off first and <laughs> power down the system. <laughs> your habits change when it's your own gear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and when you don't have a, a crew to come in and fix stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Let's, let's shift a bit from Atmos to just general work. Obviously, you work for a studio. You work for a record company. Mm-hmm. How does your freelance work interface with that relationship? I won't say it's a touchy thing, but first of all, I try to keep it all up front with the studio and capital, and I don't try to hide stuff from them or anything like that. Again, very early on when I started, when I started getting asked to do independent stuff or to work outside of capital, that kind of stuff, it happened kind of naturally. It started with, because I was working with Al Schmidt so much and still work with Al, there were projects that we we couldn't do at capital for whatever reason. Either we had to travel to another city or it was an orchestra that was too big and we had to go to a scoring stage or the client really wanted to work at Ocean Way, whatever it was. And Capital was really good about, yeah, go ahead, go do it. And then again, I started getting my own clients and it was, this is a jazz record and we can't afford Capital. It's just way too much money. How do we do this? So I would find a smaller studio somewhere that if you have three guys playing jazz with no headphones, you don't necessarily need a huge room at Capitol to do that. So find smaller places. And, and usually I try to steer as much as I can back to Capitol for two reasons. It's my job. And the other reason is I think it's the best studio in the world. So I always want to work there. I have all the mics. I have all the staff. I have everything. Who wouldn't want to work at Capitol, right? And then over time, it's just kind of evolved into we don't have a budget for this mix. Can you do it at home? Stuff like that. So again, I try to keep it all above board and I try to, as much as I can, not compete with my real job. <laughs> and that's that comes more from me than them. Okay, so are you paid on salary? I'm paid hourly. Okay. An hourly fee, different rates depending on what I'm doing and all that. But I mean, yeah, for, for capital. Yeah, okay. and I have a guarantee. Okay. So they have to pay me at least a certain, a certain amount. amount. Okay. Yeah. So- how does that affect your judgment with your rates for your work outside of the capital system? I try to keep it somewhat the same. So I know how much they charge for me when I'm engineering at Capital, and I try to keep that ballpark. I mean, we've done that together. I've kind of said, look, this is what I get when I'm not on the outside, and this is what you should be charging for me. And they were like, yeah, absolutely. That's right around where we are. So as far as that's concerned, we try to make that all line up. And there are times where I will work where maybe I'm not working at Capital, but I'll be getting 
paid through capital. They'll do all my billing and all that kind of stuff, especially if it's a project that was generated from capital. If it's a project, maybe we did a, a record and the producer has a studio at his house. So we track the record at capital and then we go to his house to do overdubs. I can still get paid through capital to do that. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny. It's a very dynamic situation and it's not a slippery slope, but it can get a little complicated sometimes. But it's worked out great and it works out good for them too because I'm now the person out in the world. I can go do a record at XYZ Studio for a week and come back and go, yeah, this was good. This was bad. They did this. That was really cool. Maybe we should look into that. Usually it's coming back going, yeah, we still got it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you you view everything you do, I'm sure, through the lens of capital, through it's the, the benchmark for which all things are judged. Certainly for me. Yeah, I've been there for 25 years, 26 years now. Oh my gosh. Long time. Yeah. I never intended that, but it's worked out that way. 20 some of those years was literally sitting next to Al six days a week, which I mean, that experience you can't you can't trade that there's no amount of mix with the masters right <laughs> that will get you that experience <laughs> there's no amount of youtube videos or courses that are going to teach you that no no so that's been a a huge part you know I, I know that i will always be associated with capital i will always be associated with al and i'm perfectly fine with that <laughs> i think it's a great thing <laughs> yeah there's a far worse people to be associated with <laughs> absolutely yeah and we've become such good friends too i mean you know we've been literally all over the world together making records and doing seminars and all kinds of stuff. So we, we have a great time. You know, if you look at the bigger 30,000 foot view of your time there with Al included, of course, what do you think the big takeaways are? Like if somebody said, tell me about the major things that have happened that mm-hmm. have affected you in a positive way, the things that you've learned about yourself, about the business, about the craft. I think by being there, Ever since I started this, I I kind of made a conscious decision that I wanted to be around the big time stuff. I didn't want to work at Joe's demo studio. I wanted to work on real stuff. So I put myself in those situations. But at Capital, especially because we do so much diverse stuff, like I tell people, I don't know that there's a session I would be nervous about walking into. I mean, some sessions are harder than others, obviously, and some have a little more. If it's a live Academy Awards show, obviously, the adrenaline is a little different than a quick guitar overdub for a TV commercial or something like that. But I think for me, it's just the diverse jobs that we do. I can literally be doing a jazz record one day, and the next day I'm in a different room doing a country album, and then I can flip back and go mix some Atmos, and then I can do a live TV broadcast like I have, I have clients that only know me from mixing orchestral music and I have other clients that only know me from doing jazz and other clients that I'm the guy that does the top of the tower and one mic, one take live stuff for the record label. So I think being able to learn how to do all that diverse stuff has been, for me, it's, it keeps me entertained. <laughs> I don't get bored. I'm not doing the same thing every day, which is great. Certainly being exposed to the people I've been exposed to Early on, an assistant engineer at Capital, I could be working with Al Schmidt one day. I worked a lot with Jeff Emmerich, Ed Cherney, Elliot Shiner. You know, I mean, the list goes on and on of the people I've gotten to sit next to and watch them work. And not to not to rag on those guys, but there's no amount of mix with the masters that can do that. <laughs> yeah. Mix with the masters is great, by the way. You should, every, everybody should have that experience. But there's nothing like sitting in a room with these guys and doing it. Yeah. And being exposed to those kind of artists and stuff like that. When you see it and are part of working at the literally the highest levels with the best people in the business, I think that rubs off on you. You learn how to do it. Not everybody can walk into a room with Paul McCartney and get the work done. I'm not trying to toot my horn, but we've learned to do that over the years. Right. I have a rule. I get to be a fanboy for 10 seconds and then we get to work. Yeah. Then it's, then it's all business. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's fun. It's good. There's nothing like it. You still get those goosebump moments when you push the fader up and it's Paul McCartney's voice coming out of the speakers or Bob Dylan or whoever it is. Right. But it's still work. I still have to get the work done. I have to do my part. I can't sit and pat myself on the back for being in the same room with this guy. I, I have to get the headphone mixed together or run the Pro Tools or whatever it is. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I'm sure you kind of get into a regular way of doing things. I mean, you and Al have been working together a long time. You have your systems. You kind of have your unspoken moments between the two of you, I'm sure, that have taken place. So this business is comprised of opinions and different ways of doing things. So what effect have your peers had on you? Because they do things differently. If you put you or any of your peers into the same position, it would come out differently, sonically differently, stylistically. What are your favorite things? Once again, the 30,000 foot view that you've picked up from your peers. I learn from my peers all the time, both in and out of the studio. I mean, one great thing about working at the studio, you know, I've got four other engineers that I'm with every day just on staff. Because I'm in a multi-room facility, I'm seeing three or four different guys every day, even if it's just in the hallway. And I think one thing I feel like I have to keep learning, have to learn something new, even though my career was based in kind of the traditional style of recording when I started it was on tape, big consoles and all that good stuff. So I, that's how I learned to make records. But as technology evolved, obviously I wanted to be part of that too. So I'm very up on the latest Pro Tools and I keep track of all the plugins and all that. I may not use them all, but I know they're there. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm always trying to push forward. And as a studio, we're always trying to push forward technology also. That's one thing we've always prided ourselves on is that if there's something new out there, we'll figure out how to do it. We're the studio that people come to when they don't know where else to go. When the Academy Awards wanted to do a live broadcast and not have the orchestra at the show, they came to us and said, how do we do this? And between their team and our team, we figured it out. We always figure out how to do it. The record company comes to us and says, we want to record bands on the roof of the building. How do we do that? So we figured out how to do it. We now have fiber and Dante systems and all that kind of stuff. When they came to us and said, we want to mix music in Atmos, fine, we can do that. We had no idea how to do that. <laughs> None whatsoever. <laughs> but we did it. A month later, we had a room built and I was sitting in there with a couple of the guys from Dolby showing me how to use the system and then they left and I had to figure out how to mix a record in, in Atmos. So I really like that kind of challenge. And again, I'm always learning from, from everybody. I'm on the forums. I'm watching the videos the same as everybody else. I have my subscriptions and I listen to the podcasts and all that kind of stuff. The nice part for me sometimes is if I hear something, I know a lot of these people so I can call them on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> Which is nice. <laughs> if I see Andrew do something on a video, I can reach out to him and go, hey, can you explain that to me again? Because I didn't get that. Right. <laughs> or whatever it is. So that's kind of nice, actually. <laughs> do you ever get overwhelmed no, not really. I kind of like the high pressure sessions. The only time, like people are like, you know, do you get scared? Do you get nervous? As, as long as I'm prepared, I don't get scared or nervous. I may be running on adrenaline and be pumped up 
a live set, a big orchestra. Somebody's spending a lot of money to have all those people out there. So if the Pro Tools crashes, it's on me. So as long as I'm prepared and I know what's going on, I'm perfectly fine. I, I love the bigger, more pressure sessions. Bring it on. I love that stuff. If I'm not prepared, if they throw curveballs when they walk in and you thought you were doing a vocal overdub and suddenly the whole band shows up, then it's a bit nerve wracking, <laughs> <laughs> which happens. So by doing the big time stuff, there's pros and cons to that. There's a commitment there and there are sacrifices as a result because big time sessions require big time commitment and therefore that takes away from the family potentially, that takes mm -hmm. away from your own time to yourself. How do you balance all that? How have you managed over the years? Yeah, it has not been easy all the time. Yeah, I missed a lot of birthday parties and missed a lot of dinners, stuff like that. Luckily, I have, I have a great wife <laughs> who has been behind me the whole time. Yeah, I, I don't know that I've always done the best with that, but I tried to get through it. The one nice thing about working, having kind of a day job, a real job, is I get vacation pay and I have vacation days and weekends and stuff like that, insurance, all that good stuff. So if we wanted to take a vacation, I sign myself out and take vacation. So, and this has taken a while, I don't always feel the pressure to take every single job, which I know takes most of us a lifetime to learn that sometimes not taking the job is better than taking the job. If I need to be somewhere, I just say no and go to the, my dad's birthday party or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's the next thing on the calendar. So <laughs> That's a good thing to do. Yeah. I can't remember if we touched on this in the past in episode number 70. And by the way, audience, I'll link to the original interview with Steve and Al Schmidt so you can check that out. But you had a cancer scare many, many years ago, right? I did. Yeah. I am now, I saw my doctor this week. I'm over nine years cancer free. Yeah. I had colon cancer and I was diagnosed in December of 2011. Luckily, they caught it very early, but I like to say I bought the whole package, the radiation, the chemo, the surgeries. 2012 was not a fun year at my house, <laughs> I must say. You tried all the treatments. All the treatments, got them all, yeah. I don't suggest it, it's not very fun. But luckily for me, they caught it early. One of the first things they told me was, we're pretty sure we can cure you of this. We got it really early and I was like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> what do you need me to do? <laughs> right. What do I have to do? You're going to do this, this. And, and again, that's where having a real job worked out. I have really good health insurance through Universal. The studio, when I told them, they were like, you go do whatever you got to do. We're here for you. When you can work, you'll work. If you don't have to work, you don't have to work. Obviously, Al was the exact same way. Do what you got to do to get healthy. And I did. It took a while. The nuts and bolts of it was a, a good year, at least. But then it never really goes away. There's always little things. Now I'm, I see a doctor a couple times a year, that kind of stuff, just to get checked out. But yeah, it kind of puts everything in perspective. I bet it does. Yeah. That's, that's kind of where the studio at home materialized too. It got bigger because there were days where I just, I was like, look, can I do this from home? Because I don't feel like driving. And the studio was like, yeah, that's fine. Do it from home. So, so the home studio got a little bit bigger after that. That and I was sitting around a lot not doing much so I could check out videos and play with plugins and stuff like that when I had the motivation to do it. A lot of times when you're going through stuff like chemo, you're not very motivated to do much of anything. So I don't suggest it, but go to the doctor. <laughs> Was there a lot of soul searching that happened for you in that time period? Yeah, it's funny. I don't know that I had like that epiphany of like I found myself and all that for me, it was, it was something I had to get through. It was something I didn't want to beat me. I had a really good team of doctors and I followed their advice. And my family was, I, I could not have done it without my family being here. There's no way I could have done that by myself. Yeah. There were good times, bad times. When you're on medications like that, your moods sometimes go up and down, <laughs> all that good stuff. So Sometimes you need the people there just to give you a hug and tell you everything's okay. And sometimes you need the people there to tell you to shut up and go away. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. both. The, the most interesting part for me was how everybody else reacted to my cancer. Yeah. You know, because I did not hide it from anybody. I knew I couldn't hide it because I was going to have to work and whatever else. So I just told everybody. Just, I literally, it was interesting. My wife and I sat down and once we knew really what was going on, we sat down and drafted an email that, basically 
said, this is, this is what I have. This is the treatment. This is what they're telling me. Here it is. And I sent it to basically everybody I knew and just bang. And it was amazing the response I got from some interesting people too. Like, hey, I'm coming through town. I'll, I'll come give you a hug. <laughs> Stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> you know, and then I had other people who, who didn't know how to deal with it, like close friends who just kind of disappeared. I mean, I knew they were there if I needed them, but they didn't know how to handle it. I think it showed more of their mortality than mine. It affected their thought process. But yeah, that was the interesting part was there were some people who called every day and wouldn't leave me alone. And there were other people who didn't know how to deal with it and disappeared for a year and then felt horrible about it, I will say. But I was fine with it. When something like that happens, it changes your perspective. Definitely. I think that's where I learned to say no to the gig too. Oh. That's I really learned that this is fun and all, and, and I love nothing more than being in the studio and, and making music, but it's not everything. There's bigger stuff out there. That's right. They caught it early. Did you know something was wrong? I had a little pain in my stomach that I realized wasn't, it wasn't like gas. It wasn't moving. It was in the same spot. And I thought I had an ulcer or something like that. So I went to my doctor. It was time for my physical, my yearly. I try to go get a yearly physical every year. And it, it was about that time. So I just made an appointment and very quickly they figured out what it was. They didn't, I have a theory that they knew what it was way before they told me what it was. Um, mm. You know, I won't go into the gory details of colon cancer because it's, it's messy. But once they knew what it was, it was like within two weeks, I was doing radiation and chemo. It went really fast. And even they said, under a normal circumstance, they would have had me in surgery within a couple of days. But in this case, they wanted to wait. And we waited a few months and did radiation and stuff. But yeah, it went fast and it was very surreal. The interesting part is I don't remember a lot of it. Like I remember parts of it, especially after my surgery. I was in the hospital for about 10 days. It was pretty serious surgery. And there's stuff I just don't remember. They tell you, your mind just erases that stuff. If it comes up, I'll remember bits and pieces, but Stuff like I remember after my surgery, I couldn't get up and walk across the room. And I have no idea why. I have no idea why I couldn't do that. Hmm. But I know I couldn't do it because I was there. I couldn't do it. But yeah, it's really odd. Now, once things cleared up and, and you got back to work, did it shift how you approach anything? Again, I think it's more of realizing what's important and shifting that when you're young and indestructible when that really great gig comes up, you blow off your doctor's appointment because this really great gig came up. I don't do stuff like that anymore. <laughs> I make sure I go to my doctor's appointment. If something hurts, I go get it checked out. Part of that is age. We're yeah. now, I think we're, we're only like a couple months apart in age, I think. Yeah. So when you hit those big numbers, it changes a little bit. <laughs> you slow down a bit too. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, stuff like that has put things in perspective. So... You know, I always ask this, your approach to the business end of this, the financial end of this, if your wife is anything like mine, I'm sure that there's a discipline to finances yes. in your household. Is that, yes. is that accurate? Yes. And it's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing we're not bachelors. Exactly. Yeah. First of all, my situation is a little different than a lot of the people on your show in that I have a job, I have a salary, I have insurance, all that good stuff. And the reason I still have the job is there are a number of reasons why I never left capital. But that has made it life a little bit easier, knowing that I'm always going to have a job. Also because of that, I never had to invest in huge amounts of gear. I mean, I have more gear now than I ever actually wanted, but I don't have to buy expensive compressors. They're at the studio. I have access to them. So when I started with the home studio, then obviously I started needing more gear and stuff like that. And my wife and I quickly realized that the studio at home was generating enough money that made it worthwhile to have and to make some investments and stuff like that. So I do make enough money independently working from home in a non-COVID time to make the studio worthwhile. And I like having a studio at the house now. It's kind of nice working at my own pace and stuff, but I don't spend a lot of money on gear. I only buy stuff that I need. I'm not one of those guys that sees the shiny plug-in and needs it. I initially bought what I needed to work. If something comes up, you know, if I get a project to mix and they've used one plug-in on every single song, I may go out and buy that plug-in just to make my life easier. I invested in a really good set of speakers early on, my JBL 6328s, which I still have. 
and I never changed. So I think that's the most important purchase any engineer can make is a good set of monitors. If you can't hear properly, forget it. You're, you're dead in the water. But I, I don't record at my house. So like I, we were joking today, I had to go find a microphone. It just... <laughs> like, I don't have that stuff here. I own some microphones, but they're all at the studio. And the stuff I own is 421s and SM7s and stuff like that. I, I don't own big, expensive microphones. I don't need to. I have hundreds of them at my disposal, which yeah. is nice. I also like to say, you know, I have other people here that like to spend my money, so I don't have to do that. Yeah, I bet you do. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have three kids. The youngest one is a junior in college now, and the other two have already gone through. So I have a house in LA. That's not inexpensive so and and cars and stuff like that it's funny because i think there's a big misconception that anybody working on big records and big movies and stuff like that is making money hand over fist and i'll tell you i make a good living i'm not a millionaire (laughs) and neither are most of the people that i work with so the artists maybe and i think that's part of the business that's changing there just aren't budgets like that anymore Mm -hmm. i remember talking to one engineer, I won't give names, but he was like, in the 80s, it was fun. You could do a record and it would take you two months and you could make seventy, eighty thousand dollars 80000 Wow. But those budgets are gone. You can't charge three grand a day plus $1,500 in renting your gear and it's gone. Like when I work here, when people ask me to mix, if I get emails or whatever, what do you charge to mix? I say, here's my rate, but that also includes my studio. I don't charge extra for my studio. I don't charge extra for gear. Depending on the project, I may say something like, you get two recalls if I think it's going to be a problem. But for the most part, I work until the job's done. I kind of know what's coming. You try to judge the project as it comes in and charge accordingly. (laughs) Let me pose a question to you. Let's say you mix something Mm -hmm. and the mix revision list coming back is just extensive, detailed, Mm -hmm. extensive, to the point where they just want a different mix. What do you do in that situation if you look at that list and go, huh, okay, maybe maybe I'm not the right person? Yeah. I don't know that I've gotten, I have not taken jobs that I didn't think I was the right person for, uh-huh. where I've kind of said politely, like, yeah, I don't have time to do that, or I'm not sure I'm the guy, why don't you call this guy? Uh-huh. He might be better at it than me. Once I'm into a project, I try to gauge... I have this discussion with people all the time. Like, do you charge by the hour? Or do you charge by the mix? Do you charge by the song? Do you charge by the day? How? And I kind of go, well, I've tried them all and I don't have a good answer for you, to be quite honest with you. If it's something I think is going to be a lot of back and forth, I'll charge by the hour. And they just know that I'm going to charge by the hour. So if you send back a million revisions, you're on the clock. Hmm. That's where it gets funky. Then other times it's like, yeah, I'll charge by the song because... It's an easy chart and I can probably mix this in two hours. So I'll charge you for a half a day or a day or whatever it is or X amount for the song. That's one thing. I don't have a manager or anything like that. I have to do it on my own. I mean, I have capital. I have Paula. (laughs) Right. So the studio helps me with stuff like that at times. And I use that as as a guide to what the studio would charge. So yeah, it's a really hard question. Finances are not fun. You know, no, I, I don't like talking to clients about money and that kind of stuff. I, it's I'm not good at it. <laughs> well, let me let me pose a hypothetical. What if you had to step away from your job today and go freelance 100 percent? Would mm-hmm. you have a strategy of how you would manage that transition? Not necessarily. It would obviously I would have to hustle gigs <laughs> more yeah. than I do now. Right. You know, I'll be honest, a lot of my jobs come to me. I still don't know how I get work. I don't know how anybody gets work. It's a weird business. Work shows up. I'm not sure what happened. So yeah, it would be a tough transition. Yeah, I'm not sure what I would do. Obviously, I know a lot of people. I've been around a long time. So the one nice thing is that I don't just do rock and roll records. Like now I've kind of made a conscious decision. I'd like to start doing more film work and video game work and stuff like that. I enjoy it. And I think as I get older in my career, it could be a more stable place to live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's face it, 50-year-old guys don't do a lot of 20-year-old pop records, nor do I really want to. Well, when, when you're doing video games, what are you doing? 
so I have a couple games I work on and I mix all the music for them. So I don't do sound effects and stuff like that. So it's all the interstitial music. Like the big one I work on now is a game called Apex Legend. Mm -hmm. I mix all the music that's in the lobbies and when they jump the jump sequences and all that kind of stuff. There's there's all kinds of music in there. And the video games have been great because especially a game like Apex, it rolls around. Believe it or not, I'm literally getting text messages from the composer right now, which means there's probably more work coming because they have new seasons and they introduce new characters. So like every couple months, I get a text message like I just got and there's probably another four days of work there for me. And it's great. <laughs> Are you getting multi-tracks or are you getting stems or no i get multi-tracks from him sometimes depending on the character sometimes it's a lot of electronic stuff sometimes it's orchestral stuff sometimes it's a combination of the two this composer is is really great he's really thorough he's very tech savvy so he actually prepares things really well we've been doing this game for a few years now so we kind of have a system i have a big huge template that i can start with that's got all the stems worked out and all that kind of stuff i mean one thing about working in film and stuff like that is they want stems of everything. So a lot of times the biggest part of the job is creating your template to work in Yeah, because of the routing you need. I mean, I think on this game, there's something like 30 stems, but they all have their own routing path and they all have their own reverbs and stuff like that. So once I got the template set up, it's a lot easier. I think you had Frank Wolf on your show a while ago, another yeah. scoring mixer. Frank and I do a lot of work together and, and we did a TV show. They, when they were doing those live TV shows, we did Grease Live, it was called. And even though the show was live, we still had to make a record because the record got released the day of the thing. But we had to figure out a way to work at Capitol in two different rooms at Capitol, doing tracking, orchestral songs, and vocals, and then both of us mixing at our own studios, at our houses. And we had to figure out a way to seamlessly do that. So we had to come up with a template that we could use in all of those places without changing anything, without having IO setups get screwy and without plugins going bonkers and that kind of stuff. It took us two days to build a template just to build that template. Once we had it, it was, it was easy. Like literally I could mix and Frank would go, can you send that to me? I got the composer here and I'd send him the session and he opened it. We had all the same audio and he could open it right there and it played fine. I could then take that back to Capitol, do a vocal session back to my house, his house, whatever it was. It worked out great. But again, it was two days of prep work trying to figure out how to do that. For the audience, that Frank Wolf episode is number 112. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. That was a while ago, too. Yeah. Do you keep an HDX rig at home? No. I have Ultimate software, Uh huh. but I use the Focusrite interface. Okay. I got to have the HD software because it does all the multi-channel stuff, multi-channel tracks and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to place a bet here, not necessarily financial wager, but just kind of a future bet that you're going to be doing even more work from home in the future. So what's the long-term? Because I know you can't hang out in the living room for the long-term. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I think everybody's going to be doing a lot more work from home, good or bad. Everybody has come up with ways to work at home. And I think good or bad, the record companies and management companies now know what we can do from home which I'm not sure is a good thing. Yeah, you know, my wife and I have talked about it. I'll have to have some kind of a studio somewhere. I think as of now, it's not something I want to pay to have another place because during normal times, there's times where I don't turn my home studio on for months because I'm working at Capital or wherever I'm working. Yeah, I'm going to have to have some kind of place forever, probably. <laughs> Do you have room in the backyard? We talked about converting the garage, but that's really expensive. The nice thing is, is as children grow up and move out, our house is essentially getting bigger. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so we can dedicate a little more space to stuff like that. If it gets to the point where I have to rent a space somewhere, I'll rent a space somewhere. Well, I'm already getting pressure because my 12-year-old wants his own room, doesn't want to share with his brother anymore, and he's got mm -hmm. his eyes on mine. Right. And so we're already like looking into like, what would it cost to have a building in the back? It's yeah. expensive. It's expensive, especially if you want stuff like bathrooms. <laughs> yeah, we may not do a bathroom. We'll probably just do electricity and call it at that. But yeah, one thing, I don't have a lot of clients that come here. Well, especially now, nobody comes over. But I try not to have clients come over to the house because, again, the studio is in my house. And it's literally, even when it was in the little office, it's in the middle of the house. There's no doors I can close or anything like that. So it's, it's fairly disruptive to the family when people want to come over. In 
past times it's been a little easier because people were at school and work and I could be here kind of by myself with a client for a while. But still, it was like, yeah, but at six o'clock, everybody comes home and we got to stop working. <laughs> so that part of it is a little odd. Luckily, I don't have to deal with that right now. I can continue working like this. And I always have studios at my disposal too. There's plenty of rooms in town that you can go to. Yeah, but not every one of them has Atmos and... It's getting a little easier now with Pro Tools. And when I mix, I'm mixing 100% in the box. That was a very conscious decision so that I could be mobile. Mm -hmm. I have a boot drive now. I can literally take my computer with me and boot it up on another computer and everything. I have my iLock and my boot drive and I can pop that into any Mac and bang, my system is there and I'm and running. It's great. That's a really great idea. Yeah. it's It, it gets a little screwy depending on operating systems and stuff like that, but it's working really well for me. It's a little bit harder with some of the Atmos stuff because we're dealing with Dante systems and stuff like that. So it's a little bit harder to keep up with that, but just for straight stereo mixing, yeah, it works great. And a lot of a lot of guys are doing it, especially a lot of the film mixers who have these big complicated sessions. But even guys that are, when they mix at their place and then want to come to Capitol to finish it off and stuff. I mean, I have guys that literally show up with trash cans with their own Macs. And we unplug our computer and we plug all our interfaces into theirs and boot it up and you're running on your own computer, which works great. So I have all my plugins. I have all my quick keys. I have all, you know, the mouse is set up the way I like it. It's funny because for, for many years, I didn't have all this custom stuff in my Pro Tools. Like I didn't have custom key commands and all, because I was moving from room to room, even at Capital, I could be in any one of four or five different rooms on a different Pro Tools rig. Mm -hmm. Now all the Pro Tools rigs were the same. We try to keep our rigs very consistent, but if I have all this customized crap, I couldn't bring it with me and I couldn't put it on every computer because the next guy comes in and he does it a little bit differently. You know, everybody has their own way of working. Now with the boot drive situation, I can literally take my studio with me, which is great. So I'm a little bit more apt to maybe buy a plugin that Capital probably doesn't have or a more specialized thing because I know I can kind of take it with me now, which is nice. Well, we're about out of time for the audience. I will include a link to Steve's website. That's stevegenowick.com, as well as some uh, social media links for Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter that I see that you have on here. Yeah. I can't remember the last time I was on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you got a job, man. Somebody's got to be mixing. Exactly. My social media person is in the back room. That's, oh <laughs> my, yeah. My daughter does my website. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I gotta get some some new, I gotta update it. I'm sure there's stuff on there. But on that website, there's there's videos and links to like some of the webinar stuff we've done with around Atmos and other stuff too. So there's places to go there. And one parting thought, did you not do a remix of one of my all-time favorite records, Miles Davis's Kind of Blue? We did an Atmos mix of it, yeah. It's pretty stunning, actually. Really quick story. Yeah. So obviously we got permission to do it. And it's a three-track. It was recorded in like 1958, I think. So it's only a three-track tape. So we were kind of like, how the hell are we going to do this? It's three tracks. Well, I had a couple of ye years so before that, I had remixed the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus film for mm -hmm. Atmos. And what we did is we took the three tracks and we set up a ton of mics in Studio B at Capitol, and we reamped the multi-track into the room and used that room as kind of the Atmos-y space. So we kind of decided to do the same thing for Kind of Blue. But when I started listening to the record before we did it, I was like, man, there's not a lot of bottom end in this record. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I, it's, I love that record. It's mm -hmm. amazing. But when you put your engineer hat on and trying to figure out how to, I was like, wow, honestly, this doesn't sound spectacular. The playing is amazing, but it doesn't, like, we may have to pull out some tricks here to get this in Atmos. And we showed up to the studio and I got the file and I hit play and all our mouths hit the floor because it sounded so good. <laughs> the multi-tracks are immaculate. So over the years, it's been mastered and remastered and blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of like the Beatles stuff. It kind of degraded on CD over some time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the multi-tracks of that are just absolutely stunning. So then we went through, so we got this Atmos feel going and we went through, we got an original vinyl version of the album. And like, there's a spot where Cannonball just comes blazing out, just way too loud, way too loud. So we went back to the album, put the needle on the record, listen, and he's way too loud. So we just left it. <laughs> so we ended up no EQ, 
no compression, basically no fader rides. It's literally, we just played the multi-track. They played the record. There was no mixing really to do. It was just a matter of find this atmos space and then let it go. And if you ever get a chance to hear it, it's, it's pretty stunning. I don't think it's been released yet, but I'm sure it will be. Yeah. Just on a personal note, my oldest son is named Miles for Miles Davis. And when he was born, we had that playing in the delivery room. We had to bring in our own battery-powered little iPod situation (laughs) because they wouldn't let us plug anything in. And that was literally playing when he was born 15 years ago. That's great. You haven't heard the the Atmos mix, have you? No. I don't have an Atmos setup, so... Yeah, but you didn't hear it when you were down at Capitol? No. Okay. We'll get you down. (laughs) Once we can have people back in the building. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got to get an Atmos set up now. Yeah. Well, I know some guys. Uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I think I know who I'm going to talk to about that. Well, hey, man, it's it's so great to see you. I really miss like the usual. I know that I can count on hanging out with you at the PMC booth at least for 30 minutes to an hour having drinks at NAM every January. We missed our NAM drinks this year. We missed our NAM drinks, so yep. I'm really angling for that next time. When when the world clears up a little bit, come on down, we'll hang, or I'll come up there. Mm. It's funny, my daughter's been here. I haven't been up there at all because she's doing school from the back room. So next time we have to move her back up, I'll give you a call. We'll go have coffee. Give me a call. We'll go grab a <laughs> coffee or a drink. Exactly. Well, super cool, Steve. Take care, and thanks again for coming back on the show. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. All right. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Steve Genowick here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you like the show, I encourage you to head on over to iTunes and leave a positive review. And that does it for me today. So I must thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, currently residing now in Maui, Hawaii. So jealous. Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song and Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show with his lovely voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.